Hey, it's Margot Tantow here. Welcome to Windowsill Chats, a podcast for creatives and the creatively curious. I am so glad you're here. I've spent decades working with artists and being one myself. I've spent time in the trenches, figuring out the best way to get something made, how to put oneself out there, how to get your work noticed, and pull yourself up and face the next challenge. Windowsill Chats brings you creativity from a global perspective, as I talk in depth to friends I've met along the way. I'm here to bring their stories to you, as well as a few of my own, and see if there's anything you can pull out for yourself. Maybe a laugh, something you can relate to, and definitely a little bit more community for your quiet corner. So grab a cup of tea or coffee or a glass of wine and join me over in my sunny windowsill. Yes, I need your trouble. Welcome to Windowsill Chats. I am so glad you're here. If you've been here for a while, I'm sure grateful for that. And if you're new, welcome. Don't forget you can subscribe to this lovely little corner of the world, my podcast, and it'll show up in your inbox every Wednesday morning. This week, I'm really, really looking forward to sharing this wonderful conversation with you that I had with Kimber LeBleek. And Kimber owns an amazing jewelry business. And we'll get into how that came to be as well as having a day job, you might say. So I know a lot of us do many things. And this is the story of an artist, an entrepreneur, a socially aware person, and somebody who wants to make a difference, but does it very, very mindfully and thoughtfully. Kimber is a world traveler and natural connector who brings her experience as an artist, metalsmith, jewelry designer, curator, and entrepreneur, together with her passion for people and the natural world. After receiving a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Northern Arizona University, she launched her art career as a professional union scenic artist in the entertainment industry. After a decade of painting and sculpting large-scale film, television, and theater sets, Kim transitioned her focus to supporting the arts through nonprofit management and fundraising. As an executive leader in the nonprofit sector, Kimber has worked for many well-respected national and international arts and environmental organizations, which include Seattle Children's Theater, Seattle Audubon, American Institute of Architects, and currently World Animal Protection, which is where her current story started. Kimber is also the founder of a female-forward jewelry social enterprise called Kimber Elements. Using traditional colors, textures, and patterns, Kimber Elements amplifies the voice and visibility of Indigenous women in geographic locations where wildlife is most at risk. She currently co-designs and collaborates with 30 Maasai women in rural Kenya who create unique modern jewelry that celebrates traditional craft and promotes wildlife conservation. I am so glad that I met Kimber and we connected the pictures of her visit to Kenya and meeting these wonderful women that she works with for the first time and what they shared with each other are just so powerful. And those will be on the show notes. I also want to encourage you to hop over to her website, KimberElements.com, K-I-M-B-E-R E-L-E-M-E-N-T-S.com because you guys, holiday gifting, these pieces are unique. So I'm, I'm very glad to bring you more of Kimber's story. Also, I wanted to remind you that I open up very few slots every month to have an hour one-on-one with me. And you can find those at www.tantelstudio.com backslash work with me. And this is an opportunity for you to ask me the questions that you might not get to, or you might have in your mind. Is your portfolio ready? How do you get in front of the right people? Are you working on a project that you wish you could have 
another eye on anything like that. So hop on over. The spaces fill up quickly or just shoot me a DM if, if you're having any questions about that. All right. I look forward to talking to you more. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Kimber, for being here today. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your story. Yes. Thank you for inviting me for this conversation. I'm happy to be here. Good. So tell me just kind of how it all kind of came together for you. Did you grow up in a creative family? I'm going to go to the way back, you know, Mm. what did that look like for you? Mm, The way back, the way back machine. Um, I did not grow up in a family of talented artisans. And so I just kind of felt like I found my way as an artist. And I probably, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona to start, and I didn't feel like that culture or community or area resonated with me. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly seeking people who were like-minded and artists and musicians. And so I was always kind of leaning towards LA and trying to find a way to get out of Phoenix uh, to find my people. So um, it took me a while to to really identify with myself as an artist and to find uh, a community of artisans. And ultimately it did lead lead me to leaving Phoenix, Arizona. Did you do that? Because you went to school in Arizona. So was it, did you sort of kind of investigate a bunch of things and think, okay, I'm headed West? Mm. No. I went to school. So I went to Northern Arizona University and I was fortunate that my family did support me in getting a bachelor's of fine arts. My father is mm. a veterinarian, so science background. Mm. And uh, my mom at the time um, sold life insurance mm-hmm. and they, I think they asked the question once, like, well, what are you going to do for a living? Mm-hmm. And I think my answer was, I don't know, I'll figure it out. And they trusted me to, mm, to nice. find my path. Yeah. And never really questioned me along the way. I think they just, you know, thought that we could just invest in school and, and see where that would take me. So that was a really, that was really yeah. nice of my parents and my family <laughs> to support me in that. Mm-hmm. And then, so yeah, I went to Northern Arizona University because uh, it was close to home and in-state school. Mm-hmm. And I chose that school because it did have more of a, I don't know, arts and hippie culture yeah. <laughs> and um, just a smaller school. And I just felt like I would find my community of people there. And then after I graduated, I did dabble a little bit in Los Angeles and that scene, the music scene and the art scene was where a lot of my friends in high school were a couple years older than me. Mm-hmm. So I did follow them to LA a little bit. And, you know, well, that makes sense. Yeah. And got to visit them and hang out there. And I did have a brief stint at Otis Parsons in Los Angeles. Mm, Cool. So then you said you were doing scenic art in the entertainment industry. Tell me a little bit about what that even looks like. That sounds like something that's hard to break into. It's also something I just kind of found my way into. So when I was at Northern Arizona University, I got to say that better. You might have to edit this. When I was at NAU, (laughs) okay. When I was at NAU, I fell into the theater department and I was doing an internship with the school of arts and theater arts. And I ended up working at painting between the scenic department and in the costume department. Mm, And so, yeah. And I quickly realized, and I think that other people in the costume department realized that I am not a seamstress. I'm not a sewer. I'm not a cutter. I do not resonate with fabric at all. And so uh, paint was my medium and I was studying Mm -hmm. painting anyway as my primary medium. And so uh, painting sets and backdrops just was a natural fit for me. And I never thought that I would find a career doing that. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I graduated from school, it was either LA, it was going to stay on the West Coast. So it was either LA, Portland, or Seattle. And um, LA seemed too big for me and overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I spent some time there with some friends and much different. Yeah, I just, I just didn't know how to break into that scene. And the Hollywood scene just seemed so hard. And this was the early 90s, and Seattle was really the up and coming city. For sure. Yeah. And there was a lot of migration in this area for artists and musicians. And at the time, there was a really small film industry uh, that was kind of burbling up here. And so I moved into this area and I was like, I'm going to do scenic art mm-hmm. and I'm going to figure out how to do this. <laughs> Love that. And that was my motivation for moving here. And I interned with some small theater companies at first. 
And then I just got fortunate. I started working on um, some film sets. I worked on Northern Exposure and worked on some commercials and just ended up in the, in the film world too. And then from there, it was, like I said, it was a really small community that was really starting out. And at the time, uh, the scenic artists weren't unionized and mm. the carpenters were. So mm. it was like this really interesting time of the artisans who are mostly women uh, unionizing and wanting to be paid a parody with the carpenters that we work side by side with. Wow. So yeah, so it was at kind of the beginning of the founding of 488 in the Seattle area. That's ex- And then that's... I was in that industry for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. as a union artist. Yeah. Good stories to tell for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I I really always like I mean, I feel like often we're known for how people see us right now. And I've certainly had, you know, experiences where people say, oh, even bosses, you know, people I've worked for, worked with saying, oh, I didn't know you could do all that. I was like, how did you think I got here? You know. <laughs> so I think it's so interesting to hear about those things. Plus, also, I think for so many listeners to hear those little like, oh, that's a job, you know, it might it might prompt somebody to to check something like that out. So that then because you were so involved in the arts, um, that led then to nonprofit, the nonprofit sector from there. Is that kind of how, mm. how you yeah. moved into that? Yeah. The transition was, you know, as a scenic artist, I, you know, now I call it, I was in the trenches really, yeah, you know, I was behind sure. the scenes yeah. and I was, you know, part of a really large scale production process and to mm-hmm. define what scenic arts is for people. Um, you're basically a set painter. I was not mm-hmm. a designer. So I helped execute the designer's vision for large scale sets and mm-hmm. backdrops. So somebody would come to you and say, this has to happen. Would they provide a little sketch or a like photograph or something? Oh yeah. It was a big production. So yeah, it was the designer, sure. uh, large scale, like renderings. Basically uh-huh. the, the designer is the architect mm-hmm. of the scenery. And so they have full scale renderings, like an architect would mm-hmm. for a backdrop and a set. And, um, they would also, you know, design the furniture and the floor plan and the space and the walls. And sure. so it's not just one, you know, backdrop painting. It's mm-hmm. like this whole, you're involved in the scenery, whole ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. So not only was I painting literally, ecosystem, that's a perfect word. Yeah. The whole like ecosystem. And so, um, I was also, you know, sculpting columns and, you know, spraying foam and carving foam. And, um, you know, the builders would basically build armatures and, uh, laminated sets made out of, you know, steel and wood, and then it would come to the scenics and then we would fabricate the surface basically, Mm. and then paint the surfaces on everything that was on stage. So it was really large scale. And since I was so immersed in that system and process, I ended up getting really sick, Um, Mm. just being exposed to all of those materials as, uh, you know, us artisans, you know, being, and we're thinking, oh, this is fine. This is just what I do. It's okay. If I'm, you know, sanding this foam or, you know, (laughs) inhaling these. Yeah. 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 The air that we were breathing, you know, in these, you know, warehouses um, wasn't healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since we were a union, we did take protocols and wear respirators and, but just being around that, you know, for eight, 10, 15 hours a day, you know, you do, you're exposed. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, having actually really bad skin rashes um, mm-hmm. and res- upper respiratory issues. Um, and which also was really leading to some, some severe panic attacks and anxiety attacks. Yeah, yeah. I eventually became really afraid of the materials I was working with. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. To the, to the point that it was actually starting to paralyze me. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's so interesting. I think I have some upper respiratory stuff too. And when I've gone through the just barrage of questions, have you been here? Have you been here? Have you done this? Have you, you know, who knows how many resin factories I've been in and how many, you know, glass glitter, all the things that we do, not similar, but very different to yours because it's product and it's, and it's inventing and it's making and it's refining. And it's, we, we're not, we're thinking about the end result and the process, right? Not necessarily, oh, you know, I'm spraying something that maybe (laughs) I don't want to be breathing. Yeah. Yeah. And so you understand just, you know, being around an industry that Mm. is, you know, producing 
uh, a product that is, you know, exposing you to materials. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so really the trigger for me is I was working on, they're called MDS sheets, which is, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have to look up what that stands for. MDF, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, materials safety data sheets. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they, it was really, you know, just the animals that are lab tested for this product and how they expose people to this, you know, like p- people who have had reactions to this product. And so it was just those things were, that were just sort of, I was creating, that was creating fear for me uh-huh. yeah. Um, yeah. to be in this space. Yeah. And so, so at some point it becomes not worth it. It's not sustainable. Not the, not the right equation anymore. No. And so I creatively had to re-engineer myself out of that. Mm. And so at that time, I was like, I am a working artist. I've been a working yeah. artist for over a decade. I've never sat behind a computer. I don't have admin skills. This is my skilled labor. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to transition. And so I, being in the nonprofit sector, you know, I was working at the time at Seattle Opera. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I, I can do fundraising. <laughs> That's immediately where I went. It was like, I can tell the story of why the arts need support and funding and the value of the arts. And I think I can do this. So I took a class in nonprofit management. Actually, I got a certificate at University of Washington. And I was just trying to figure out how to really transition into you know, supporting the arts in an administrative way. And so staying what, involved mm-hmm. with what, with what was right in front of you, but in a way that felt a, a better fit for where you were at, at that time. Yeah. Just to still be involved with that community, but have a different job basically in that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I ended up becoming a fundraiser and um, transitioning into that. And my career has been, um, uh, you know, growing in the nonprofit space from, you know, I currently do fundraising, mm-hmm. um, but also just, um, you know, executive leadership work and marketing and fundraising and managing teams. And, you know, all of those things are, are integrated in this nonprofit sector. So, so when, what was the point or did you always keep your finger in something creative or w- was there a mm. point where there was a separation where you said, I have to bring that back in, or did you always have other things that you did? That's a great question. Um, I think for a while, so paint, I do not paint anymore. Mm-hmm. I do not touch paint. Mm-hmm. I don't resonate with it. I I've completely abandoned paint. And like, sometimes I paint my house and I'm just like, I hate this. <laughs> like, this is another I'll, life. <laughs> I'll do it, but I hate it. <laughs> so, um, so on the side then, so arts became a hobby, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So it transitioned from a living to a hobby uh-huh. and, you know, hobby has different connotations and words, but it, for me, it was like, I don't rely on this anymore to make a living. Right. And there was some relief in that. I think I was leading to burnout. Mm-hmm. And I was really afraid to find another career as an art working artist because I was afraid of burnout again mm-hmm. and, and resenting my skill and um, yeah, just crashing and burning. And so I wanted to keep some distance and some space. Yeah. I think that's something that so many people can resonate with because when you, when you do that thing you love, whatever it is, but certainly we're, we're speaking creatively and then you have to, or people have ordered, you know, 7,000 or you, you know, you have to create this by this deadline or something where it's making you sick. Then it's not the, the joy is, is absent. Yeah. I think sometimes when you lead with so much passion mm-hmm. that you need to find some boundaries, you know, to have mm-hmm. some, so you don't kill your passion. And right. so, yeah. So art has always been on the side for me now. And I'm, I'm happy with that balance. And so then I started playing with other things mm-hmm. and it was really interesting because I was always such a 2d artist. And then working as a scenic artist, I obviously had to do 3d work as part of that set work. So then I started exploring my personal art became really three-dimensional, which was really that. fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I went from painting to um, doing printmaking and printmaking to me was, you know, kind of that carving into plates, uh, which was kind of a little bit of 3d. Mm-hmm. And then from printmaking, I went to, well, I want to put these prints in a book. So mm-hmm. then I went to bookbinding. Cool. 
And then from bookbinding, I was like, I want to wrap these books in wire and like <laughs> solder them together. So then bookbinding led to metalwork. Nice. And what an interesting and, transition. Yeah. Cause I wanted, to, I had this concept in this project. We can talk about that later. <laughs> then I wanted to like fabricate these books with steel wire. Yeah. Love that. And then that led to metal smithing and then metal smithing led to jewelry. And so jewelry is where I'm at now, but that path, you know, has taken me 20 years of mm -hmm. me really diving deep into a different media and kind of playing and experimenting with it. And each one led me down a different path. Um, there was also like a brief kind of between bookbinding and printmaking was like paper arts and paper cutting too. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes sense too, that you went from your dimension, even though you did three dimensional when you were working on the sets, but your dimension came from your place that you knew so well. And it kind of mm. grew to something that maybe could fit in a smaller space and maybe wasn't that heavy paint. And then it, and then it evolved. And I, I love that. Yeah. I became really obsessed with doing miniature work because <laughs> it was something I could like control and it was small and yeah, tiny, you know, it's, yeah, exactly. So, so somewhere along the way, you had an idea of how to broaden your, your maker base. I mean, I'm, that's, I'm not even beginning to touch on, on what you do now. And I'm, I can't wait for people to be like, what? <laughs> I just think what you're doing is amazing. So how, so what happened then? So you got into mm -hmm. jewelry and you were, um, kind of making your own and was that satisfying? Yeah, I'll back up a little. I, so to do this book binding class, uh, book binding uh, with steel, I ended up taking a metal Smith class at Pratt mm -hmm. in Seattle. And I made a little sample of something just to like play with soldering and welding. And yeah. I, I basically made a necklace because on a small scale, sure. well, I was, you know, teaching myself how to weld and everybody in the class was like, that is amazing. You should make those and sell them because everybody wanted one. And so oh, I was like, happens. Oh, I didn't plan on doing that, but okay. <laughs> so then I ended up making uh, steel jewelry because it was me basically practicing uh, that technique over and over and over again. And I found a lot of satisfaction in that. Mm -hmm. So then I kind of randomly haphazardly or whatever we want to call it with no intention started a jewelry business. So in 2011, I founded Kimber Elements as kind of a unique modern line of jewelry. And I would only fabricate 11 units of one design. 11. I love so that. I became really obsessed with 11 because K is the 11th letter in the alphabet. Mm -hmm. And so I just, for me, that got me to move on. It got me to make 11 of them Mm -hmm. And then I'm done. And that's cool. And I wanted people to kind of have like, these are really unique. Mm -hmm. And then I would come up with a different design and make 11. So I was the sole maker for about um, nine years with Kimber Elements. Wow. And it was on the side and it was mm -hmm. really low pressure. And I'm, you know, in a couple of stores and museum stores and galleries and, um, and have my own website. So it was small production line and I felt like I could manage and control that. Yeah. So I put buffers and parameters on that yeah. to keep the balance. And also, you know, I had a full-time job, so right. that helped me that's a really nice way to do it though. I mean, you have set your own parameters, which, which work with your timing and your energy and, you know, just managing it. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, we could talk about what Kimber Elements is today. I would love to. Yeah. So in 2019, I visited Kenya to really understand the complexities of human wildlife conflict and to observe how Kenya is at the forefront of really addressing this complex issue. And the most important lesson that I learned is that it's critical for people to support conservation and for conservation to support people. And that social justice and wildlife conflict are really deeply interconnected. And so during my travels, I met a Maasai community who invited me to collaborate with them to create an artisan group of 30 women. And the reason was, is it's really difficult for them to gain access to a global market really to make a sustainable livelihood. And it's really logistically and socially challenging for them to export their product. So it sounds like that, like, how did they know mm. to, to ask you about the creative aspect of anything? Cause you were there for a different mission. Sounds yeah. Like. Yeah. So I met a conservation guide. His name is Isaiah. And we got to talking about wildlife conservation, human wildlife conflict, empowering women, 
you know, the Maasai community. And I was really intrigued by the beaded jewelry yeah. he was wearing. Yeah. And I kept mm-hmm. saying, talk to me about that. I'm curious about that. What is that? Where can I get one? How is that mm-hmm. made? So, and then he would ask me the same thing. He's like, well, why are you asking so much questions about jewelry? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, because I do jewelry and I'm really intrigued. And so I showed him the work that I do. And he's like, this is really interesting. And he's like, mm-hmm. you do metal work because women aren't traditionally metal right. smiths. Um, in Kenya. And so he was really intrigued by that. And so I was intrigued by the beaded work. And so it was just then that sharing and that conversation Mm -hmm. that he was really fascinated. And there was a, there was a commonality and a connection there. And it wasn't until I got home Mm -hmm. that he came back to me a month later and said, I have an idea. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's your idea? Because we kept in touch. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. And I've been wanting to start this project and um, we can manage this on the ground and create a collective of a group of women. And if we could work with you to design and create a product and export it uh, with your jewelry business, we think this would be really great. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. I just think that. So, I mean, what did that phone call feel like? That was a great question. At first it was like, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> and then I just had to lead with curiosity. Like, well, tell me more. Like, mm-hmm. why, why, why me? Mm-hmm. Why are you thinking this? Um, what have been your barriers? And, you know, ultimately, what is our partnership going to accomplish? And, and how is this going to work? You know, so I just had all these questions. My mind was blown. Like, logistically, I was like, I don't know how to export mm-hmm. product from a globe, you know, yeah. from across the globe. Mm-hmm. So it really, I had to sit with that for a while and have conversation with my community here and mm-hmm. my partner and really kind of think about what, because it would change my business model. Yeah. What does that mean? Because you're yeah. then supporting and standing for the livelihood and the capabilities of women that you'd never met mm-hmm. A- mm-hmm. across the world. But also that's exciting. Exciting, but also a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, and uh-huh. I really wanted to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. I so, so respect that. So seriously. And so I have a couple of thoughts on that. You know, like ultimately this partnership inspired me to rebrand Kimber Elements to be a social enterprise. And Mm. I, before I came to that place, I really was, you know, honored and humbled to be an outside, as an outsider, to be a guest Mm. in this community. And that had to, I had to sit with that and do some really deep thinking as a a privileged white woman Mm -hmm. uh, that I have access to a lot of things that they don't. And, um, you know, I had to really uh, ask myself, like I have in front of me, like four really key questions, you know, drafting my brand narrative um, and thinking about, you know, what as doing a do good business, it's important to really think critically about how you communicate impact mm. and acknowledging my privilege and the power dynamics at play. Mm. Mm. So good. And I really spent a year sitting with that. Mm. I so respect because it would be so easy to to be like, oh, that's exciting. Let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> but I think, especially with the dynamic involved or so completely present in that decision, and you know, uh, I, you know, that's me too. I'm a white woman, but I have great curiosity and a and a and a desire to to change that narrative or to, to investigate a way to show up differently. Right. So I really respect that you um, took your time to consider what that would mean. Yeah. In the bigger picture. Thank you. And I'm still growing and learning in this space too. We we all are, you know, myself and my partnership, my partners. Um, And, you know, the questions that I had to ask myself are, does my business sound like a savior? Mm, good one. Am I a heropreneur? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, and in that question, like, right. who is this going to benefit? Who's winning here? Yeah. And then the other question I had to ask is, you know, am I making blanket, blanket statements about a community or culture doing this work? Mm-hmm. Another question I have is, do I have permission to share the information I'm sharing? 
what does inclusive narratives look like? Mm. Are the makers giving me consent, which is constant is fluid. Mm-hmm. And then the other one I asked is, you know, am I promoting cultural dominance by doing this project too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's this all look like and how is it perceived and how will it be perceived? And yeah. what am I? It, yeah, I'm, I don't want to be the great white hope. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. not the goal. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. man, that's some soul searching, beautiful mm. soul searching. Did you have um, people you could turn to that were good mentors for this? Mm. This, thank is, you. this conversation? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I had to do a lot of work to find um, the resources and the community and so I just started asking, it, was, it took a while for me to verbalize this, to really mm-hmm. come out and be like, this is what I'm thinking mm-hmm. and to have the confidence to verbalize it. And then once I did, I needed to follow some breadcrumbs and they just led to other resources and other resources, mm-hmm. other resources. So, you know, for example, I went into Curaco, which is a local business in the CD who focuses on female forward social enterprises with a lot of, you know, benefits to equity. And I asked her about, you know, what are your resources? How'd you get here? And that led to Business Impact Northwest, which I took a business class, which was amazing. And then I was talking to another friend of mine who led me to someone who does coaching in this space on working with global artisans, because I had no idea how to do that and putting those Mm -hmm. systems into place. So I had a consultant help me with that work. I have some friends who were really great on helping me with my intercultural competency work. Yeah. You support me in that space. So it was a lot, it was a lot of studying and and, you know, deep research. And it was great. I, I love the resources that have been coming my way. I, I crave more all the time. And um, yeah, it was, it was really I, great. I feel like, I mean, you have an amazing outcome from this, which we'll continue to talk about. That's, that's a physical product, but it sounds like you have a heart changing process that you've, that you've gone through too. And that feels like something that probably there's a lot of legs to that you might not even know yet. Yeah. The sharing of that. Yeah. I feel like I'm still learning and unlearning in this space. And it was, it's really changed me as a person. I find that this is like the biggest gift that's happened, not only to my business, but for me as an artist and how I view the world and my work globally, it's really, it has a lot of benefits and also the people that I'm working with and the community that I'm benefiting and, and, you know, transitioning into that and what's, what their benefits are. So I was recently in Kenya. I was lucky enough to go. There was a little window in between getting vaccinated and (laughs) before this new variant, but I was able to go to Kenya a month ago and to be able to spend time on the ground with them and to meet the women for the first time and to talk to them about how this project benefits them and to talk about our collective goals and to negotiate and to design in person together was really touching. And I can tell they were so proud and excited about their work and to share their work. Um, You know, a lot of them don't even get out of their village. So their global perspective is a lot smaller. And so for them to have their work worn by somebody you know, and a different part of the globe really is meaningful Mm -hmm. for them. And, and also how it's benefiting, you know, we've got a couple um, social benefits. That's not only we've got some, you know, mission points that we focus on too. One is wildlife conservation and the other one is supporting their daughters to study wildlife conservation. So there's an education Mm -hmm. component too. So did, that's right. I don't want to forget to talk about that. So did you, I'm going to go back to your um, partner there mm. now contact you and said, I have this idea. And you sat with that and ruminated and figured out that that would be a good idea and, you know, got guidance on how to start that. So how, then what? So then, I mean, then, I, then there comes the excitement, right? I'm like, I'm so excited. Let's do it. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and they were excited and they wanted to do it. And so, you know, we did some, all of this is on WhatsApp. So we did a okay. lot of sketches and chats and texts and sending pictures and, you know, and it's it figuring was- out how to make jewelry that you think will sell with their expertise, which is beading and, and your input, which is designed for the people you're selling to. Did yeah. I say that kind of right? 
Kind of right. I, I still want to call them the designers yeah, because okay. this is still Good. their traditional craft. Yep. Great. Um, which I'm learning a lot about this mm-hmm. beadwork and Maasai patterns are not my language. Yes. And so, and my skill set. So I rely on them heavily to tell me what they can and cannot do, what their I patterns are. Yeah. So, and then, so I love that too, because that's you saying, okay, you're the experts here. You, this is your artwork, but we want it to sell in this way. So then did you collaborate on what that might look like? Yeah. So then I'm like, can you make this white? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they're like, oh, I mean, I don't know if you know them as either. So colorful. Yeah. Just, just, <laughs> I've been lucky enough to see some of your pictures too. Yeah. So colorful. I mean, all the beads they wear are just like so beautiful yeah. and really bold. So I'm like, can you make this in black and white? <laughs> and a little pop of gold. Yeah. <laughs> and they're probably like, oh, oh, lady. <laughs> yeah. It's not as pretty, but okay. Mm-hmm. You know, to met them, you know, they're just, they, they wear so many colors. So for me, it was also showing them the metal work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That's going to be sold side by side with their beadwork. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if I make these earrings that are a triangle out of gold or brass right. or silver, can we make a complementary earring and bead that you know, so with the shape, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, in a lot of your pattern work. So it's us going back and forth of trying to find how our strengths complement each other. How rewarding and challenging. It's, it's really challenging. And there's a lot of, uh, things that get lost in translation. Um, you know, we're working with 30 women that aren't living in the same village, so they have to walk, you know, to go visit each other. So tell me a little bit about that. Uh, Did they know each other before? They do. Okay. Yeah. They all know each other. And Isaiah, who's my partner and his wife, Naomi, uh, managed the women's group. Okay. And they handpicked who is included and they picked 30 to start with, to keep it small and manageable. Mm -hmm. And they are spread out. So we're working in the Amboseli Savo ecosystem, which is South Kenya, which is close to the Tanzania border. Okay. Um, by Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh, cool. And so uh, there's a lot of things that get lost because I'll send him a sketch or drawing on WhatsApp. They all don't have smartphones. Mm, they don't sure. have access to technology. He'll have to go print it at a cyber store and then they distribute the pieces of paper. Some get them, some don't. So, you know, they're working off of the drawing that he prints. So our first order to answer your question, we were so excited mm-hmm. and it was kind of a crazy order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was when I got, and then me trying to figure out international shipping as a oh, business yeah. and setting, you know, I had to really like some paperwork completely like unravel and unpack my current business model and kind of, and start over mm-hmm. and rebuild mm-hmm. and put different systems in place. Cause this is a different economy. It's a different system. I'm working in a different way. So I had to really re-engineer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got my international shipment and I sat there and I was like, Oh, these are bigger than I thought. This is a different color than I thought. Mm. <laughs> this isn't what I thought at all. Oh boy. <laughs> so <laughs> it, they use this material. I didn't realize they were putting that on it, mm. you know, cause I, I didn't know what, how they construct these and okay. I didn't know what materials they have access to because right. I wasn't on the ground with them. Right. So you, you know, I would imagine use, you'd have to go through that in a way. Yeah. It was a learning curve. I mean, I was like, they use recycled plastic. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that that's like how they, you know, build these armatures for their pieces. So there were a lot of things that it surprised me. Yeah. Our first order surprised Mm. me. Um, but then I went back yeah. and I said, you know, I had to sit with it yeah. and be like, well, this isn't what I expected, but this works. This doesn't work. Can we change this? Can we try this? I can sell this. I can't sell this. Uh-huh. So I just needed to show them that we need to, we need to refine some things mm-hmm. and they were so gracious yeah. and they were like, okay, mm. like, we'll we'll do better next time. And we also didn't really have a sample system in place. Mm. Like there was a confusion, yeah, like yeah. sample to them mate. they thought like, we'll make a hundred. Oh. And I was like, no sample means you make one. Right, right. And then once you get the perfect one, then we make a hundred. So, so had they, things like that. before they were working with you on this, were they beating anyway? Okay. Yeah. Great question. So they, uh, their market is normally their marketplace is normally selling 
in the markets in the region where they live in, which they walk to. They have a market day every Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And then they also sell to to tourists. So that is their main main audience. And it's very few and far between. You know, they don't sell the bulk and the amounts that they can if they have a relationship with somebody like me where they can... They can sell more per piece. Gosh, I just love this so much. I I often would find myself looking at companies who had figured it out, right? And or those videos of the of the men metal smithing. And I I do some as well. And I have you know a torch and a, a charcoal block and you know my turntable spins. You know I have the things I you know the perfect pair of pliers. And they're they're using methods from like hundreds of years ago, but it, it makes it look so romantic and so fantastic. And they're turning out these, you know, nice, simple brass earrings and things like that. But I, I love how you've kept this, you know, the women are doing it. You, that relates to what you're doing. So the next round, was it vastly closer to your initial thought? Yeah, I, I would say I'm so proud of how far we've come in the short amount of time. You know, it's an iterative process and we have a lot to learn from each other. So how, how refreshing. I, yeah, I would say the first round, there was probably a 50, 60% loss mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that order. Mm-hmm. The second round, there was a 10% loss. Wow, that's huge. The third round, there was a 1% loss. That great of a, yeah. a of a difference in three. That's yeah. You know what? Oh gosh. You know, and and it's so good to think of that. A when you're working with other people, and B just for ourselves, right? If we try and we work through something, and we we pay attention, and we put ourselves, we ask ourselves the question, can we improve? And the answer is yes. Yeah. And we're all motivated to improve our product because we're seeing the benefit of the outcome. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and they're talented. And I think the first order was tough because they weren't used to working with somebody like me, right. They're used to just making the bracelets that they always make with the same colors and selling them to tourists at the local market. So I think I had some assumptions in there clearly, (laughs) like some of the materials Mm -hmm. they were using, and I, I pushed them to do things that weren't really within their design scope. Did, so did they like I was like, that? I like this and I like this. Can you combine it? Yeah. You know, and then they, they did. And it was, it, it, it didn't oh, work. Okay. Okay. And so now it's better. Cause I'm like, tell me when it won't work. Right. And so they're like, yeah, this won't work. You know, I, I, <laughs> that's a really interesting point too. I, I love it when, you know, I've done a lot of work in Asia and factories and things like that. And we'd go to a certain factory and you might come with an idea like, Hey, I want to, I don't know, maybe it's a paper mache factory. And can you do this? And can you do that? And, and what I quickly learn is show me what you want to sh- like, tell me how to do this. Tell you're, you guys are the ones doing it. Show me what, show me your techniques. And then maybe we can build something together. That's a place that neither of us were thinking. That's where the sample is really imperative. Yes, indeed. And they're still learning the word sample. So I'd have to say like, so now it's, it's incumbent upon me to adjust. Right. Yeah. So yeah. before I used to be like, I want a hundred, make a sample, then we'll move forward. Right. And instead they would make a hundred thinking it was a oh, sample. I see. So now I say, I would like to make an order. Let's talk about, you know, then we'll design. And I'm like, okay, this one's great. Make another sample. Then I'll tell you how many. Or like I an order, order of one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so, you know, it's just refining and adjusting and learning. And then, yeah. So interesting. So then tell me, because there's a big other element of this, this, that's the mm. natural aspect and the, the land and the education. And so how does that, how is that wrapped up in, in your yeah. plan here? The mission component yes, of the, the social enterprise. Component. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, wildlife conservation is a viable livelihood in Kenya and mm, for sure. I believe, and my partner Isaiah and Naomi believe that more women need to be at the forefront of this oh, industry. I love that. And so, ten percent of our sales supports uh, a wild—we call it our wildest dreams mm, scholarship program—to mm. support their daughters to study wildlife conservation. Is this something that they would have wanted to do anyway? Yeah, this is really interesting. So, at first, it was—you know—we talked about education. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah is like, you know, the support of the proceeds from our product, you know, help support basically their, the women to be able to buy their school uniforms sure. and 
their pay their school fees and their materials for their children to go to school. So I was like, that's great. But then one young woman kind of rose to the top for us. And he showed me a picture of her and he said, Kakito wants to study wildlife conservation. And they identified a woman in her village and she always has wanted to, and she was getting to the college level and she has a barrier. Um, She comes from a family of 17 children. Her father is 95 years old. Um, You know, her mother also shares with two other wives Mm -hmm. in their family Mm -hmm. and she couldn't, she couldn't afford school. So we made the connection that, you know, through our jewelry sales, we could afford school for her. She decided to go to study wildlife conservation and community development and management at Kenya Wildlife Service. Mm. And in order to make that happen, I was like, I am not in the scholarship business. Mm. Like I, I can't manage scholarship fees and funds mm. and get into that. So I built a partnership with Big Life Foundation oh, wow. and Big Life Foundation has a really big part to play in that community. Um, They're very present. Um, They're a nonprofit who works in that community and also does scholarships and supports wildlife conservation and land management in the Savo or in the um, Amboseli ecosystem. And so I contacted them and they helped distribute our scholarship for Mm -hmm. us, which was a huge lift. Um, And so, yeah, Kikito is our first young woman in school and she graduates next year, first quarter. And then we'll when I was in Kenya this last time, the women and I talked and they agreed that they want to only support women at the college level mm. wow. um, because they wanted to talk about, you know, which who's next right. and what level, but mm-hmm. they decided college level because that is the one that is the highest mm-hmm. barrier for them. Mm-hmm. And then the least accessible and it's their goal next time to do two women. Wow. So, so with their earnings or, you know, the 10%, that's what that's going to. So I, met you not long after you had returned from your trip and, and the energy and, and enthusiasm is just so catching and palatable. So how long had you worked with them before you met these lovely women in person? A year and a half. A year and a half. So what mm. was it like? First of all, COVID, it, you know, nobody that, mm. that was such an interesting barrier. So you went back and arranged to meet them and you met the mother of this, the gal who's Kikito. Kikito, Sorry. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Yeah. So due to COVID, you know, my travels kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed. So it shouldn't have been a year and a half. It was actually Mm going to be a year. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the reason why it took me so long to go back. And so, yeah, when I went back, they arranged an afternoon for me to spend some time with them. And it was so beautiful. Like it was like a formal meeting. (laughs) I wasn't prepared for that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It was very formal. And five women got up in front of the group and spoke to me about the project and how meaningful it is for them. Uh, Kikito's mother stood up and told her, told us how proud she is of her daughter. Um, And then, you know, we got to talk about what's next and like I said, they got to negotiate. It was great. It was really good to see them negotiate about, you know, what their goals are and what level of schooling they wanted to continue to scholarship. And we, then we talked about they each want to purchase a goat also with their earnings because mm-hmm. uh, they're pastoralists. And so livestock is their economy. Mm-hmm. So it's very important for the women to also have their own economy yeah. and their own savings account. Yeah. So we talked about how much a goat is. We have 30 women, how many pieces we need to sell for everybody to get a goat. And so they're also reinvesting in themselves, yeah. which is really great. And also last year they purchase some beehives so they can make honey to sell honey to. Mm. So they're creating their own social enterprises. I let them drive that. They know what they need. They know what they need best in their community to thrive. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a nonprofit, so I'm not going to get into that. And um, yeah, they, they need to drive that. And that is, that's what they do with their earnings. And I'm just really proud how savvy they are Mm -hmm. and you know, that they're also, I'm not teaching them business skills. Actually, they're teaching me business skills. (laughs) (laughs) They're teaching me a lot. Yeah. So, so that's also what they uh, do with their earnings as well. So yeah, we've got really ambitious goals. Oh gosh. It must be so great to, to build this together with them. 
and to, you know, to be able to brainstorm and sit there and say, if we do this, this can happen and, and be in a place, you know, that, that you're empowering each other. You know, I like that empowering each other. Yeah. yeah. So um, people right now are like, what is this? Where can I look at it? What's it look like? Explain. Yeah. I for, sh- for sure. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is gorgeous and different and unique and stunning. Mm-hmm. And so tell me a little Thank bit you. about, about the outcome of your partnership, the beautiful. Yeah. Movie. Thank you. So um, it's definitely, like I said, Maasai, you know, beadwork and patterns with a little bit of modern t- twist. I think that's just the, the strengths that we're both bringing with our jewelry design backgrounds. And so um, it could be found at KimberElements.com. And you can also see it on Instagram at KimberElements. And uh, right now we're not doing wholesale. I kind of, this is where I need some mentorship and some coaching, mm-hmm. just kind of growing my business and what that looks like. So uh, right now it's just direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did that is first is I, I realized very early on that we needed to do a soft launch to even see if we could do this. Right. You know, I realigned my business to be a social enterprise during a pandemic. Yeah. And <laughs> I didn't know like if I could actually, you know, sell these pieces. So for me, it was also a test of testing the market, finding my customers, realigning my business. And so I did a soft launch and now I'm feeling that the reception was good mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's time to take it to the next level. So, and we're refining our quality control and our processes and our systems that enables me to feel comfortable, you know, launching into brighter, broader distribution mm-hmm. and doing wholesale. Mm-hmm. So I have some ideas. Uh, yeah. I have some ideas for you. Oh, do you? I knew you what I was going to ask you. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. And yeah. I think that's so you're wise in, in the figuring out, like, is this working? Can we 30 of 31 of us control what this needs to look like? Is the quality good? What's the response? Am I off track with my call? You know, what are people wanting? I think that's great. And the other thing that thing that I think will be a big draw is the natural, the giving back aspect. It's beautiful jewelry, but it's the story is so powerful. I think it's, yeah, I think what makes us unique is the the um, give back story. I like to call it like lift up, yeah, lift up. Um, story part of lift it. Each other, and yeah, we're lifting up each other. And I think the, also what's really unique is that I'm in there too as a metalsmith, mm-hmm. and so that's I haven't really seen. You know, when I did my market research, another business that's combining the owner or the founder's skill set with global artisans work. Yes. Um, you know, you do see a lot of other global artisans doing fair trade mm-hmm. all in one space. So people are still interested in me as a maker and my work. I would have to say my long-term business plan is for me to step out mm-hmm. of that and be just be the designer mm-hmm. and working with other global artisans to fabricate my designs. So for example, I would love to work with other global artisans in India or other countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the core principle has to be in the areas where indigenous communities are living side by side with wildlife. Mm-hmm. And there is a wild human wildlife conflict component. Oh gosh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I think um, the, the, the great lens there or the, the, positive or the important lens, I should say, it's not necessarily positive is there's, there's ribbons and layers of other things going on threaded through all of this. Can we please pay attention in order to wear this lovely piece of jewelry? You need to understand what I'm trying Mm -hmm. to, to tell you what we're trying to implement, what we're trying to change, what we're trying to educate people on. And I think that is just, uh, it, it's, it's just a really beautiful thing that that's what you set out to do. And the jewelry came from just having a conversation along the way. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty, um, empowering, I think. Yeah. Thank you. And that's my North. Cause otherwise mm-hmm. I feel like it's really easy for me to be like, Oh, this, this thing is beautiful. And, oh, this artisan does great work. And, you know, I would start curating and working with other communities and people. And 
that's enticing and tempting and people who do that, it's fantastic. But I needed a, an, another boundary and a focus and the impact to me had to be connected with wildlife. So hopefully I will be able to expand in that space and work with other, other artisans in other areas. Well, and I just think that story is very unique. I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of fair trade that are certainly helping communities and helping fund um, projects, but this is, this just feels really relevant and, and, and just such a, a, an important thread through the whole thing. And I, it's exciting. I can't wait to see, you know, in a year from now, where, what happened in the last year, you know, I, cause I think this would be very, it's a timely design, you know, the, 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 the bead beading and the metal and the way you're doing it feels so, um, it's elegant, it's wearable. It's, it's a mix of common and elegant together, which is, I just think, and I don't mean common, like, but you know, these women bead like this and wear it all the time. And just, it must be super interesting. I mean, I would love to talk to them and say, what's it feel like to do this and shift it slightly, but are you having fun with that? You know, it's, have loved it from the start. And especially when I got to hear some of the story. Yeah. Thank you. What are your next steps for you then? Hmm. Yeah. I'm just now looking at my, our collective goals for 2021, but right now I'm trying to sketch out kind of my business plan ideas and what we're going to focus on. So, uh, we, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about kind of like the fast fashion. Mm-hmm. So we are trying to make them, um, kind of timeless. And also, so we're not getting caught into the fast fashion colors. You know, this is very slow fashion. Um, it does take around three months to do a collection from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And then once I get the collection, it does take me about a month or two to prep it, to launch it. Mm. So I'm also learning a lot. I've never been in the fashion industry. So, you know, fashion photo shoots and lookbooks and (sighs) all of those things I've never done before. So I'm learning that. And so it does take us a good six months mm-hmm. to launch a collection. So I'm, a, I'm comfortable with that pace mm-hmm. as, as well as they are. I think if we can do a couple wholesale accounts, that would be really great. It would feel good for them to have some bulk orders mm-hmm. um, because the collection timeframe, there's such a lag in between. Right. And so just to keep that economy going to me would feel really good. And so trying to figure out what wholesale looks like for us. Big Life Foundation, who is our partner, does have an online store. They're a nonprofit and they do sell some earrings, which is a unique design for for Big Life Foundation. So looking into that and then, yeah, I think I'm just going to have to go to Kenya once a year. Well, that's that's not a horrible thing at all. I think the wholesale aspect will be very exciting. I, it's fun to do. And it's, it's, you know, when you, when you figure that out, it's like, okay, here's what I need to charge here. I'm going to put myself in front of these customers. What are they going to, how are they going to respond? And then they, they will, I know they will. And, and I think too, because um, it's timeless and it's not fast fashion and the latest colors. It's something you could wear now and 10 years from now, you're going to grab it because you love it just as much and it it goes just as well. So I think stores will, that's very appealing as well because a product Mm -hmm. that you can count on um, order after order and have customers that want it again and again is pretty cool too. Plus how do you, you know, a business needs a lot of things to survive. And one of the, one of the things that really helps is unique product and unique product with a story. And you're providing, you're providing all of that. And the cash flow. And the cash flow. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, and I was really afraid of, I was afraid of wholesale at first. I, I, I have to admit, yeah. I still am a little well, bit. The but I'm very different. I've, I've moved from fear to curiosity. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you <laughs> so. know, what you offer to wholesale, you know, I would think about it as, well, what are the products that I can maybe get a little bit more margin out of, or they're not as hard to make, or we can make more of these more quickly. And then, you know, charge a higher price for this piece. And it's your, it's your, it grabs the attention, but the, the cat, the margins made over here. So. Yeah. I'm also going to include this. I've also been curious about exploring other things that aren't jewelry. So for example, like working with a clothing line that has beaded embellishments or that uses like a 
speed to hang their tag on their product. Ooh, yeah. Or I I noticed this other business that, you know, has like Maasai beaded product on their their liquor bottle, huh. um, you know, this, as a decoration. Yeah. So I'm curious about just getting into what is packaging look like? Yes or a different aspect of retail that isn't jewelry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just curious. Well, and, and that's a great way to be thinking because then your, your eyes are open and the, again, you, you didn't expect to have this conversation and be in this position. So it's being open to the, the possibility. Uh, and I think packaging is a great idea. Again, it's how do you differentiate a product? So maybe it is a, a bottle with some beading on it, or maybe it is, do they, I mean, I know you with beading it's there's thread involved, but do they sew beads onto things too? Like, could they make patches with beads? Do they do mm -hmm. that kind yep. of leather? They usually sit on leather or uh, recycled plastic backing. See, there goes my, I can't stop. I think about it all the time. What can we turn this into? So that, yeah, <laughs> it'll be wonderful yeah. to see because um, I can't wait to see what's next. Yeah. I'm excited excited to explore other options and just think creatively mm -hmm. about it. It doesn't necessarily have to be jewelry, although that's on our brand, mm -hmm. but you know, wholesale can look different. Oh, for sure. So, it can. You know? Yeah. And I'm always looking for those partnerships also with values alignment, right, you know, that right. they have, Big deal. I mean, that would be really dreamy for me. So somebody else who has a wildlife mm -hmm. component product, um, you know, supporting local communities. So if I can find somebody who's also creating a product in that space that needs, you know, beaded embellishment. Yeah. I think that would be really And that, that'll be an interesting way to approach it too. It's like, who's doing this and what can we create together? Because that, mm -hmm. that will be where the expected becomes unexpected. Yeah. And the impact, you know, with our mission alignment mm -hmm. is, is grand is bigger. Exactly. And so. that's, that's the goal is to make mm -hmm. that understood and make that impact, have some, some waves that make a difference. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So excited. Thank you. Yeah. I just, I love what you're doing. And I, I think the reason behind it is so important. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Can you tell me who's inspiring you? Three people. Oh, I was afraid you're going to ask me that. <laughs> I've thought really hard about that. And it's so odd that I don't have an answer. That's okay. I think because I'm, I'm such a constant absorber mm -hmm. of information and books and music and art that I don't really have yeah. one or three people that I turn to. Mm -hmm. And and if I did, it changed. Right. I think, I mean, personally, it changes day to day, you know, yeah. it's, it's sort of what have I been yeah. involved in and, and who, who did something that made me turn my head. Yeah. So if I would have thought about it more on a granular level, like today, yeah. Maybe, maybe I would have had an answer. But, <laughs> so I don't know if you want to include this because I said, like, no, I, I think that's totally, you know, I think it, I just, I so appreciate that because it changes and I, I'm inspired by the work you're doing. I'm inspired by those 30 women and your business partner for saying something and the work you're doing with wildlife. And those are the things that, that now that I, have heard a little bit more of the story. It's like, I want to do a little bit more research. I'm going to, that's going to be in my, I have an awareness now that maybe I, I didn't have before in the same way. And those are the things that, you know, that's just where the connections come from. And I love that. So. Yeah. Thank you. Well, connecting with you is also a surprise and it was really nice uh, that we met at a market. So lately that's been my, my way of getting the product and the story out there and meeting people. And it's also been hard during COVID. So, yeah. so yeah, it was just a delight to meet you at a market and talk about our stories and you also working with global artisans and your work. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I'm, I'm super good grateful. Connection. Absolutely. And uh, we'll just have to keep check in again and see where, where yes. you've gone. I love that. Yes, please. Yeah. And brainstorming ideas. Like I need to always surround myself by creatives and yeah. always learning something new. Well, you obviously always have. And I, isn't it interesting to look back and say, you know, oh my gosh, when I was painting sets and carving columns, I certainly never thought I'd be, you know, going to Kenya and yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I feel very fortunate. My creative journey. Not only was I able to be a working artist and make a, a good living off of that, uh, my first career, um, just where I am still today as an artist and that I've always kept it in my life. And 
you know, I do have my nonprofit day job, but it also has a wildlife component. Um, it's very values driven for me. So it's just always trying to have everything in my life be aligned with my values. So mm, see, that's, if you can do that, that is a really fantastic accomplishment. And I think it takes work. It takes, <laughs> it takes work. a lot align, of work. Align with yeah. your values. It really does because you have to know what they are and you have to be present to that. I think. I bet you've made some people think today and I really appreciate that. Well, thanks so much for being here, Kimber. Yeah. Thank you, Margo. That's it for this episode of Windowsill Chats. Thanks so much for being here with me. It's just so great to be able to bring you these conversations with the fantastic people and wonderful friends that I've met and made along the way. Make sure you subscribe to Windowsill Chats on your favorite podcast app and please share it with a friend. And if this episode spoke to you, I'd really appreciate it if you would also leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can just go to the bottom of the episode you've just listened to and it'll let you leave a review. If you have any questions or want to check out more details or inspiration that we talked about, head over to the show notes at windowsillchats.com or tantostudio.com. They'll both take you to the same place. I can't wait to share more stories with you again next week. I value your time and I absolutely believe in your potential. Have a great one, everyone, and stay creatively curious.